Please let's have a a season of prayer here. I invite you to bow your heads with me. Um, okay, all right. Appreciate that. Let's bow our bow our heads. I kneel, but I'm, I'm having some issues with my back this morning. So, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunities that you give to us each and every day for life and to make choices. And and we pray for the Holy Spirit to be in our hearts that we make the right choices, choices that please Thee and that form our character to be like that of Jesus. Uh, we thank you for this Holy Sabbath day that we can come together as a, a free people and worship thee freely in spirit and in truth. We know the time is coming very soon here, Lord, uh, when we will be persecuted, uh, heavily persecuted. And uh, uh, it will look like uh, the church is about to fall, but we know that uh, by your promises that the church will not fall. It will be victorious. And so help us to be among those victorious during this final battle that uh, we're going to talk about a little bit here this morning. We pray that you'll be with those who couldn't be with us. Be with Susan, who's ill, our member up in uh, Battle Creek, and and Jerry in Battle Creek. Be very near to her. She's been going through a a tough time in in discouragement. Be with those who are dealing with uh, physical issues. Uh, Help me to uh, overcome this pain here this morning, Lord. And, And be with those of our children and our families, that we may be a light to them. Decisions are going to have to be made here before the books are closed. And uh, we want to be a light that leads people to Jesus so that they'll be in that book of life. We thank you so much, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins. We claim the blood of Jesus who was shed for us. And we thank you, Lord, for willingly uh, taking us back into the family again through his merits. Give me the words to speak this morning on this such important topic, Lord. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've entitled this message, Three on Three, and I alluded to it a few weeks ago. Um, <clears throat> it's very interesting when living in our time and, and, and being moved by the Spirit to see the signs of the times that are going on around us, we recognize we're living in the last days. At least I hope we recognize it. And not just the last days, friends. You realize that we've been in the time of the end since 1798 A.D. And so there are a lot of things that have been laid out in prophecy, which is basically history in advance, isn't it? And so God has given us prophecy. He's given prophecy to His people to give us that warning of what's soon to come so that we can be preparing. And not just us. God died for all people. And so He loves everyone. So He gives us these things so that we can share them with our families, our friends, our neighborhoods, and the world, friends. Because God doesn't want anyone to perish. Isn't that true? And so, I've entitled this message Three on Three. You know, I grew up involved in in a lot of what is called extracurricular activities. You know, those are activities that are outside the regular academics in school. Um, And and of those activities, you know, none of them were grounded in religion. I went to public school, you know. So, but I, I, you know, I, my parents instilled within all of, uh, all of uh, their kids, my siblings and I, um, to be very active. And I participated in Boy Scouts, uh, and I participated in all manner of sports. I mean, I lettered in baseball and basketball and football and track, and, and I'm an Eagle Scout. And so 
uh, I was successful in these endeavors, okay? Uh, but let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. It's all for naught, friends, if you gain the whole world and lose your soul. Amen? Now, I continued to be active in sports after I'd graduated school because I was, well, you know, when you, when you are successful at something, it builds you up, doesn't it? And so you enjoy doing it because people like to be successful. And, and so I was ex- successful at it, and I enjoyed participating in them. And about the time I left Purdue University, um, this was in the early 80s, and before becoming a Christian, uh, they started what was called the Gus Macker Basketball Contest in Lafayette. Have you heard that, Jerome? The Gus, Gus Macker. Um, it was a three-on-three tournament. And I was very excited about it when they started this. And, and I talked to friends uh, of mine. We all played together, and, and we talked about giving it a shot, entering that, that contest. I mean, one time, in, 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 and I was in basketball leagues, that was my favorite sport, was basketball. Which is really kind of sad, because I'm only about 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, I always thought, you know, if I was about 6'2", to 6'5", I would have just tore it up, you know. <laughs> But no, I'm this little guy. But I love I love basketball. And, and, and one time, I was in one league, and we played a game three on five because the rest of our team never showed up. And we didn't want to forfeit. So we said, yeah, we'll take you guys. Now, this other team had ten guys show up so they could run people in and out and whatever. And we beat them three on five, full court. Let me tell you, that was probably... One of the most exhaustive physical things I've ever done. And so we thought, well, hey, we could do pretty good three on three, you know, if we beat some a team three on five. But before it got to that point, I, I met a person that changed my life and changed my outlook on life and changed my values. And his name was Jesus. And he stole my passion for worldly treasures. You see, so I never participated in the Gus Macker three-on-three contest. I lost complete desire for it. Uh, I didn't have any interest in it. Um, but instead, I was enlisted in a much greater contest, friends. And uh, I mean, if you will, it's a greater contest, and that's what I want to speak uh, about this morning. This greater contest. This morning, I'd like to study with you about how Satan plans to counterfeit the truth in these last days that we're living in, especially when it comes to the final conflict, the final battle in this spiritual contest. Satan tries to counterfeit and contradict everything God does. Do you believe that? The Bible calls him and he he takes the form of an angel of light. Now why would he do that? Well, if he came in his own appearance, people would recognize him. They wouldn't really want nothing to do with him. So he has to counterfeit things, doesn't he? And so this is what he does. He's a master at it. He takes the truth and he formulates a plan to say exactly, it's really remarkable when you look at it, he'll say exactly the opposite of what God says and causes people to believe that it's the truth. You know, we... We read in the Bible, it tells us that, that we're going to live in a time, and I believe we are, we see it around us, where black will be called white, white will be called black. And people will believe it. 
See? And it started there back in the Garden of Eden when the serpent told Eve she could disobey God and still go on living without any kind of consequences when God very explicitly told her she would die if she did what he said not to do. That's where it all started. In fact, not only did Satan tell Eve there would be no negative consequences, he told her there would be only positive ones. You'll be like gods. Isn't that what he said? So Satan contradicted what God said, and he's been doing that ever since. And after 6,000 years of practice, let me tell you, he's become very good at it. When we talk about the word expert, that's what he is. He's an expert at it. Now, this particular message is going to be based on this particular scripture here found in Revelation 16. We're going to delve into this because there are a lot of people being deceived. Revelation chapter 16 And I want to read with you verses 13 and 14. Here the Apostle John, he says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Before I go on, if we're told about a false prophet, what does that tell you? That means there will be True prophets, right? There would be no reason to warn us about a false prophet if there were never going to be any prophets again, right? Some people believe that. They believe, oh, there's no more prophets. Well, friends, there is. (laughs) We'll get to that a little bit later. Um, But uh, out of the mouth of the false prophet, verse 14, for they are the spirits of what? Devils. And what do they do? Working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Just as a side note, I was doing some reading this morning, and I shared this with Deb, because I I thought about that, and it says, working miracles there in verse 14. And and I, and I, I said to her, I said, you know, in the past, ever since I've been in ministry, we've thought about, why is it that we don't see miracles, you know, miracles of healing, miracles of... Uh, you know, raising people from the dead, those kinds of things in God's people. It's been something that's been pondered ever since I've been a Christian. We don't see that, do we? Very rarely do we see it, right? Not in the scope of what Jesus did, right? And so the question is, well, why don't we see this? And, and the thought has always been, well, maybe it's because of our, and this may be part of it, it may be a lack of faith on the part of God's people, or it may be on the lack of unity of God's people. And there are a number of reasons. But I came across something I want to share with you quickly here this morning. And this just makes perfect sense as to why we don't see these things. This is found in Medical Ministry, Medical Ministry, uh, pages 14 and 15. And, and she's speaking about this particular verse here, verse 14 For they are the spirits of devils working miracles. Now pay attention to this. This will answer This is kind of a side note, but it just is very interesting. She says, The way in which Christ worked was to preach the word and to relieve suffering by miraculous works of healing. And we see that all through the Gospels, don't we? But she goes on. She says, But I'm instructed that we cannot now work in this way. Isn't that interesting? Why would you think that we can't work that way now? Well, yeah, I read this to you. You are in a... Think about that for a second. 
We can't work that way now. Well, why wouldn't we? She says, For Satan will exercise his power by working miracles. God's servants today could not work by means of miracles because spurious works of healing, claiming to be divine, will be wrought. For this reason, the Lord has marked out a way in which His people are to carry forward a work of physical healing, combined with the teaching of the Word. Sanitariums are to be established, and with these institutions are to be connected workers who will carry forward genuine medical missionary work. Thus, a guarding influence is thrown around those who come to the sanitariums for treatment. She goes on a little bit after that. But that doesn't that make perfect sense? Because we could, we could be performing miracles just like Jesus did, but Satan's allowed to perform miracles, and it would be too confusing, wouldn't it? And that's what she's saying. So God says, now, the time we're living in now, that's not how we work. We work by doing a hands-on sanitariums, get them out in the country, then they're surrounded by a, a proper influence, you know, and, and they're, they're treated, they're given a health message, they're given to thus saith the Lord. And so that just uh, just was like a piece of the puzzle in my mind. Is yes, like total perfect sense. And and we know then this is how we can test the miracles, isn't it? We know how God wants us to work. See. And so here we have. We'll go get back to Revelation sixteen. John here he sees. Uh, 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 three unclean spirits. He names them. It's the dragon, the beast, and, and the false prophet, right? And so here it says in verse 14, what, what are they doing? They're working miracles. They're spirits of devils. They're working miracles. They're going to go forth to the kings of the earth. That's all the political powers all around the world. And of the whole world to do what? It says they're going to gather them together, right? And so, this three, there's, there's a threefold message coming out of these three unclean spirits that will affect the whole world. And the consequences of these messages are leading us to this final showdown. The battle of the great day of who? God. Of God Almighty. But I want you to notice by that, that this is God's battle. Isn't it? It's the battle of who? God Almighty. So it's God's battle. That means He's the one in charge. And that should be a comfort to us who follow the Creator God. He's in charge, see? He's the general. Has He ever lost a battle? No, and He never will. I want you to also notice that it reaffirms that the whole world is going to be gathered together for this battle, Right? The whole world. That means that everyone will be involved, doesn't it? When it says whole world. When the Bible says the whole world, that means you and me and everyone else, doesn't it? This also means, let's lay something to rest here. This also means that there's no way for everyone in the whole world to be literally gathered into a small valley there in the Middle East to fight this battle. Right? There are many evangelicals that teach this. That's a small area for the whole world to be gathered together. Therefore, it's primarily a spiritual battle if everyone's going to be involved, which also means it's a battle between earth and heaven and not a battle between nation and nation fighting with literal weapons on a certain piece of real estate. Okay? 
Now, that's not to say that the devil's not trying to marshal up forces to fight in that area of the world as a great deception to the truth, but we're talking about spiritual warfare here being done on a worldwide scope. Okay? Revelation, the book of Revelation, is primarily a symbolic book. That's what John wrote in the, the, the very first verse in the very first chapter. If we, let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's what it's about. It's a revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which, which must shortly come to pass. And he sent, notice this, it says, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of who? Jesus Christ. We'll get back to that in a little while. And of all things that he saw. So when John said God sent and signified the message by his angel, that means that the things he wrote about are largely symbolic because, friends, the root word for signified is sign. And the word sign means to communicate an idea by using symbols. And a symbol is something that represents something else, isn't it? I mean, sign language is really a good example of it. And, of course, the spirit of prophecy agrees with this. Let me share these with you quickly. Acts of the Apostles, page 583. In figures and symbols, subjects of vast importance were presented to John, which he was to record, that the people of God living in his age and in future ages might have an intelligent understanding of the perils and conflicts before them. So, she said what? These are... Figures and symbols, right? Here's one, Review and Herald, February 14th, 1907. The Lord Jesus sent a mighty angel to make plain to John, by the use of symbols, the things that were to come to pass until the coming of Christ. And one more, quickly here, Manuscript Releases, Volume 1, that would be MR, 1MR, page 42. This book, Revelation, demands close, prayerful study, lest it be interpreted according to the ideas of men, and false construction be given to the sacred word of the Lord, which in its symbols and figures means so much to us. Now, <clears throat> having said that, it doesn't mean that there's nothing literal presented in the book of Revelation. <laughs> okay? Sometimes the symbols are dropped and God intends for us to take it literally. That's why we have to use correct principles of study to be able to differentiate the symbol from the literal. But always keep in mind, as you study anything in God's Word, and especially in Revelation, that Revelation is highly symbolic. And let the Bible interpret itself, and uh, which we're going to do here in a few minutes. And, and you'll be able to understand something that most Christians believe today uh, is a sealed book. It's not a sealed book, is it? You Bible students know this. Now, this isn't the main subject uh, that I want to get to here, but I'd like to share a couple quotes with you about this great battle we just read about in Revelation 16, because many people today have various ideas about it. 
The first one is from Ellen White, and the second one that I'm going to share is from her husband. And by the way, they were one in their understanding about this. They were in complete agreement about this subject here. So the first one, it's in Review and Herald, May 13, 1902. You know, I grabbed that bottle of water, and I don't know where I put it. Could you find it for me? I don't know what I did with it. I need to get a drink. But uh, here, the Review and Herald, May 13, 1902. She says, A terrible conflict is before us. We are nearing the battle of the great day of God Almighty. That's Revelation 16. Isn't that what we read? Verse 14. That which has been held in control is to be let loose. The Thank you. The angel of mercy is folding her wings, preparing to step down from the throne and leave the world to the control of Satan. It's a scary thought, isn't it? The principalities and powers of earth are in bitter revolt against the God of heaven. But to people of the world, it doesn't look that way, does it? They are filled with hatred against who? Those who serve him. And soon, very soon, will be fought the last great battle between good and evil. The earth is to be the battlefield, the scene of the final contest, and the final victory. So, where's the battlefield at? It's the earth, right? So, we can say that this battle isn't between nation and nation, but between good and evil, like she said, and the earth is to be the battlefield, not just one small location over there in the Middle East. However, if the whole world is to be involved, even that one small location somewhere in the Middle East will be involved as well, right? It doesn't get left out. (laughs) It's part of the whole world. And so now let's get to the second quote. After quoting Revelation 16... Uh, verses 19 to 21. James White says this. It's in a review in Herald, January 21st, 1862. He says, Here it is seen, now he's, again, he's spoke, speaking about Revelation 16 here. Here it is seen that the great battle is not between nation and nation, but between earth and heaven. And so Armageddon is primarily a spiritual battle, and yet we must also recognize that even spiritual battles will have physical consequences. I mean, that's proved true uh, many times throughout history. It's being proved true even today as we see what in the news. We see beheadings of Christians taking place, don't we? Terrible evils done uh, in the Mideast to to Christians. Terrible. They're not just Christians. Anyone who goes against this ISIS or ISIL or, you know, these fanatics... um, these terrorists that uh, you know they're doing all these attacks uh, under the name of radical Islam, and all the while you know people are watching that, and all the while these three unclean spirits are doing their work in preparation for that final struggle against heaven, and that's what it's all aimed at, friends. Everything about what we're seeing in the world is aimed for that. And here's something else to keep in mind. The gathering for the Battle of Armageddon, and Armageddon itself takes place during, do you know when? 
It takes place during the seven last plagues. Which means what? It means our salvation or our eternal destruction will have already been determined, you see, when it's fought. Because human probation closes before the vials of God's wrath are poured out, which is the plagues. So whether we're alive when the battle takes place or whether we die beforehand, we are developing a character that is being formed by either listening to the lies of the the three unclean spirits, which is the majority. I talked about that a couple weeks ago, about the majority. All right? Or by listening to the three messages that come from the throne of God. So alive or dead when it happens, the end result's the same for both classes, you see. It's either going to be eternal life or eternal death. And the key to this battle has to do with worship. Worship is the main element in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. That's what it's all about. There's a created being that wants to be like God. And he wants to be like God in that he wants to be in the place of God. See? He doesn't want the character of God. That's not how he wants to be like God, but rather he wants to be a ruler with entirely different governing principles. He wants a government where the the Ten Commandments are not at its foundation. See? He rather... Uh, wants to have a government where you live as you please to satisfy the the fallen flesh. That's the type of government he wants with the caveat that he's the supreme being that rules over all. See? That's how he wants to be like God. Anybody who's picked up a Bible and, and done any kind of reading, you know that Satan's policies is centered in self. And that's just what most people desire, isn't it? It's what our fallen nature craves. And unless we partake of that divine nature on a daily basis, friends, and submit to it, instead of yielding to our fallen flesh, we'll be among those, I'm going to tell you, that are fooled by this threefold message that comes out of the mouth of the three unclean spirits. Now, It's significant when the Bible tells us that the three unclean spirits come out of the mouth of the dragon, beast, and false prophet because out of the mouth is where false doctrines are spoken. And of course, course there's no doubt that the dragon is who? Who does the Bible tell us that the dragon is? Is Satan. As we pinpoint a little bit you know, get a little bit more pinpoint accuracy, it also represents, that dragon, paganism. And paganism is where spiritualism has its roots. And paganism pretty much represents the whole non-Christian world. In fact, the definition of paganism is uh, uh, the worship of false gods. That's what paganism means. You don't worship the true God. You worship something. And let me tell you, in case you haven't figured it out, every person on this planet worships something. Well, atheists atheists may say they don't worship anything, but they do. They worship themselves. (laughs) You're worshiping something. But let me, let me share this with you, because the dragon represents Satan, and in that he, he actually represents pagan Rome. Okay? 
And when we get more into prophecy, we'll find out that, that pagan Rome, well, there was a substitute for pagan Rome, and it became papal Rome. Okay? We'll see this. That, that's the beast. He's changed from the dragon into the beast, so to speak here. But uh, this is from the book The Great Controversy, page 438. Ooh, I need to get moving here. <clears throat> Great Controversy, page 438. The dragon is said to be Satan, Revelation 12, verse 9. He it was that moved upon Herod to put the Savior to death. But the chief agent of Satan in making war upon Christ and his people during the first centuries of the Christian era was the Roman Empire, in which paganism was the prevailing religion. Thus, while the dragon primarily represents Satan, it is, in a secondary sense, a symbol of pagan Rome. Okay? And let me read you a statement at this point, because it really nails down who these three unclean spirits are, and then we'll talk more about how their, their message contradicts and counterfeits the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. That's why I've entitled this Three on Three. We have this final battle, and it's the three against the three. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 451. And, and, and many of you uh, who are Spirit of Prophecy and uh, students, you'll recognize this statement. She says, When Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of Roman power, that's the papacy, or the beast, Okay, first beast there in Revelation 13. When she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, okay, that's paganism represented by the dragon, when under the influence of this threefold union, who's the threefold? Protestantism, papacy, that Roman power, and spiritualism. There's the three. She says, when under the influence of this threefold union, our country, and she's speaking about the United States, shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government. Are we seeing this today? It should be alarming to you. Bells should be going off. Flags should be waved here in your prophecy mind. <laughs> okay? I mean, it's happening at lightning speed. She goes on. She says, she says uh, uh, every principle of its constitution is a Protestant Republican government and shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions. Then we may, we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. Do you believe the end is near? As the approach of the Roman armies was a sign to the disciples of the impending destruction of Jerusalem, so may this apostasy... Now, the context here, friends, is an enforced Sunday worship. Okay? She says, so this apostasy... So may this apostasy be a sign to us that the limit of God's forbearance is reached, that the measure of our nation's iniquity is full, and that the angel of mercy is about to take her flight never to return. And so when we read that, we need to find out who these three unclean 
spirits are first, and then what the messages are, don't we? Who makes up this team, let's call them, of three unclean spirits? Who are the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet? I want to get into it a little bit more. We've seen that the dragon is represented as paganism, or spiritism, you could say. Many pagans worship spirits, don't they? They practice various forms of, of spiritism. And have we not seen an increase of spiritualism in the last several years, not only in the world, but also, more importantly, in the professed church? Haven't you seen it? Have you noticed it? Spiritualism is as common today as it's ever been, and I think even more so, because we're getting down to these three unclean spirits. It it can be seen in all forms of media, can it? Especially entertainment. Haven't you noticed that? Big time in, in movies and stuff. I mean, when you talk, when I was young, we read comic books before I was a Christian. Comic books are all spiritualism. Now they're making them movies. And our young people are being so sucked into it all. It's subtle, isn't it? And let me ask you this. Don't you see certain pagan forms and celebrations accepted and promoted in the church today? I mean, primary example is holidays. There are some holidays that the church practices and promotes that's purely pagan. Sunrise Easter sunrise service? Exactly. The dragon represents paganism. It represents spiritualism. Okay, Who's the, is this beast that is spoken of? Well, now, this is pointing to the first beast that's described there in Revelation 13. The beast the Apostle John spoke of in Revelation 16 and verse 13 that we started out with is the same beast he saw in Revelation 13 and verse 2 where he says this, he says, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power. Who gave it to him? His. The dragon gave him his power, and the dragon was who? Primarily Satan. Secondarily, pagan Rome spiritualism. So the dragon gave him his power, he gave him his seat. Where was he seat at? It was in Rome. Pagan Rome. He became papal Rome and gave him great authority. Now, friends, when we talk about prophecy, and when you read the book of Daniel, it becomes quite obvious that it's the, the companion book of Revelation. Because in Daniel 12, 9, Gabriel told Daniel, Go thy way, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. And we'll get into greater detail about this stuff a little bit later on in our studies, but uh, the time of the end began in 1798. So what's that mean? That means the prophecies of Daniel were opened up and presented in greater, greater detail, and that's what Revelation really is about. So when we read in Daniel 7 uh, about beasts being kings and kingdoms or governments or or religio-political powers, we can know that this is the way the beast spoken of in Revelation is to be interpreted as well. That's what it means by let the Bible be its own explainer. Okay? And when you read Revelation chapter 13, those first 10, 11 verses, it becomes quite obvious who the beast is. 
Because let's think about it. Let's look at our history. Let's think about this. What power was responsible for persecuting and warning against the saints for 42 months or 1260 days, which the Bible interprets as years? We call that the Dark Ages. Who was responsible for that? What political religious power received a deadly wound and then was healed? Or you you might say what power looked like it had forever lost its power and treasures and then became strong again. What power is the whole world wandering after and admiring today? Talking about religio-political power. What power has a man at the head of it? And is worshipped by at one point two at least billion people. What power blasphemes God by claiming to be able to forgive sin and claims to be the vicar of Christ, God on earth? You can't get away from these questions, friends, if you want to know who the beast is. In case you haven't figured it out, let me tell you, that power is the papacy. A papacy meaning it's the office and authority of the Pope. That's what papacy means. So it's not in particular one person. It's the office and authority of that power. You see? And don't forget, the one that gives power to the beast is the one being worshipped. And who was that? Who gave him his power and authority? The dragon. Right? The devil himself. Now, you know, most Catholics don't know that yet. And I truly believe when they find out, many of them will leave that church and join the remnant that's spoken of in Revelation twelve seventeen. But right now the majority are ignorantly worshiping the dragon. That's why the three angels' messages have to be proclaimed, friends. You see, to help people understand that the threefold message coming out of the mouth of the three unclean spirits are false messages that are leading them down that broad road, that majority road to destruction. And these people, those that hear the voice of Jesus, are to be called out of Babylon, aren't they? That's what we're told. Okay, So that's who the beast power is. The third unclean spirit is called the false prophet. Now we find something very interesting in Revelation 19 and verse 20. When we talk about this false prophet... Revelation 19, verse 20, it says, And the beast was taken, and with him... Now, we identified who the beast was, right? And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. What pops out at you? Most people read that and go, ooh, a lake of fire. <laughs> and they miss, the, they miss something very important here in this scripture. The beast is with the false prophet. They're together. And what, what is implied by false prophet? Because... Well, this third unclean spirit, he's called a false prophet. Well, it gives it a religious identity, doesn't it? And not only that, we just read there in Revelation 19.20 that it's found that this false prophet is, prophet is helping the beast power, isn't he? That's what we just read, really. That's why they're thrown together. 
you find them together. And if you continue to read in Revelation 13, you read the, you know, about the second beast uh, power. It helps the first beast power, doesn't it? Right? We identified the first beast. Who was that? That was papacy, right? That was Rome. Papal Rome, right? Well, who's the second beast that's helping papal Rome? And I hate to say it, we go through and we'll get into more detail in other studies, uh, but it can be no other than the United States of America, an aspect of the United States of America. Now, somebody may say, well, how can you be so certain about that? Well, quickly, let's look at this. According to Revelation 17, verse 15, we know that waters in prophecy represent peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The first beast there in Revelation 13 rose up out of the sea, which means it came to power in a populated area, right? It ruled with uh, despotic power for 42 months. That's 1,260 days. And we'll cover this again over and over. According to Ezekiel 4.6 and Numbers 14.34, a day in prophecy equals a year. In apocalyptic prophecy, there are some prophecies where it doesn't happen that way. It's specifically said. So power was given, you see, to the papacy for 1260 years to persecute the saints of God, better known as what uh, us Protestants refer to as the Dark Ages. And that ended in 1798 when the Pope was taken captive by the French general under Napoleon. His name was Berthier. Then the second half of Revelation 13, you have another beast power coming upon the scene. This is the one we're trying to identify. He comes up not out of the sea, but he comes up out of the earth. That's different, isn't it? And that means that it came to power in an unpopulated area. And it came to power about the same time the first beast lost power. That's why he was coming up, see? which again, he lost power in 1798, right? So we've got to ask ourselves, what power or what country, what religio-political power was coming up in an unpopulated or unsettled area in 1798? Yeah. Well, you could argue Australia, but even Australia doesn't fit the bill. There are some aspects of Australia, they came up about the same time, but they don't, they don't hit a number of the other characteristics. So it has to be the United States. No other power fits this prophecy. And notice in Revelation 13 11 that this power had two horns like a lamb, it says, and spake as a dragon. In other words, the character of the United States started out like a gentle lamb. Okay? But as time goes on, it begins to speak more and more like a dragon or like the devil or just like the first beast because, you see, it makes an image to the papacy or copies the papacy in becoming a state that is controlled by the church. In this case, not directly the Roman church per se, but fallen Protestantism. That's the false prophet. See? Because in Revelation 13.12 it says the second beast would exercise the same kind of power that the papacy exercised and would force the people of earth to worship the papacy. The first beast that was healed of its deadly wound and from there all worship goes really to the dragon, doesn't it? 
who is Satan. So, in 1798, the papacy received a deadly wound when the Pope was taken captive. But if we look at history, and in 1929, what happened? That deadly wound began the, the healing process when power and their treasures and their lands were given back to the papacy by the Italian Prime Minister Benito Mussolini. And today, friends, the papacy is the most powerful and influential religious power on the planet. Especially when you consider that the Protestant churches are slowly but surely looking to the papacy and lending their influence to her. You just had a bunch of charismatic evangelicals fawn over this pope. Just last year, the Pope's being recognized as the head of Christianity. Did you know that? More and more and more. He doesn't represent me, friends. I'll tell you that right now. And so, when we look at these things, it's rather easy to see that the false prophet represents fallen or apostate Protestantism which is those apostate Christian churches that have formed an image, you see, or become like the beast in character and intentions. That's what's going to happen. And so these three unclean spirits, they symbolize or they, they represent this evil trio of religious powers, you see, which together constitute, essentially, latter-day spiritual Babylon. And remember what we read before? Prophets said that as the approach of the Roman armies was assigned to the disciples of the impending destruction of Jerusalem, so may this apostasy be a sign to us that the limit of God's forbearance is reached, that the measure of our nation's iniquity is full, that the angel of mercy is about to take her flight never to return. You remember that? My friends, we're very, very close to seeing this accomplished. And we better be making arrangements for it right now, if you're not. If you live in a city, please, friends, start praying. Start making preparations to get out. Get out into country settings so that you may sustain yourself for what's coming. Let me tell you, God has promised to be with us. He's promised to make a way of escape. That's what we just read. But He's promised to make a way of escape that we can survive during this battle, before the final battle. That we can survive, not only survive, but we can still evangelize the cities during the Sunday Law crisis because there are people that will have their minds changed by this crisis. And they'll accept Jesus and come into the family of God. And so we're to live in the country, but we're to travel to the cities to give the last warning messages. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you right now, the armies of these unclean spirits are approaching. Let me give you a heads up in case you haven't seen it. We need to be on our knees and ask God for direction. Where do you want us to go? What? Where out in the country? He'll make a way. I've read testimony after testimony of people who didn't have any money. They didn't, know, and God made a way for them to get into the country.
to get settled somewhere where they can grow their own food, be more self-sustaining. Because during the Sunday Law crisis, you will not be able, not only will you not be able to buy and sell, you will be persecuted. I don't know why we can't understand this. So the things that you're used to today, you might as well forget them. The only electricity you'll have is if you have solar or wind generator. The only water you'll have is if you're pumping it out or you have a stream or you have a spring. And thank God it's going to be a short time before he returns after that. But we have a work to do. Now's not the time to run to the mountains and hide in the caves. There are still people who need to hear the message and be saved. Amen? And speaking about messages, the three messages that come out of the mouth of the three unclean spirits. And those were who? They were the papacy, they were apostate Protestantism, that's the beast, the false prophet, and spiritism, that's the dragon, right? They are competing with the three angels' messages. That's the three-on-three I'm talking about. That's the three-on-three contest of the ages, my friend. And if we don't know what the three messages on each side are, it's possible we could be sitting in church listening to messages coming out of the mouth of these three unclean spirits and not know their messages that will lead us down the road of perdition. We'll be partaking of the wine of Babylon and think it's leading us to God. First angel's message of Revelation 14, verse 6, presents the everlasting gospel, doesn't it? As well as the news that the judgment has come. It's a clarion call to return to the true creator God. So we need to ask ourselves what the devil's counterfeit to this message is, because remember, if there's a true message, there's also a what by the devil. There's a false, there's a counterfeit. Do you remember reading in um, 2 Corinthians 11 about the dangers of receiving another Jesus and another spirit and another gospel? That's what Paul talked about. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4. He said, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. You don't need to be a theologian. We need to have the faith of a child. Isn't that what Jesus said? Verse 4. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, take note of this. Paul's giving us a heads up here. If he comes preaching another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well, bear with him. And he goes on with his warnings. Now, why this threefold warning from the Apostle Paul? It's because God wants us to know that there are three counterfeit messages being preached that contradict the truth. Right? And now, these messages, these false messages may take on different forms, but they all want you to think that you can either do something to save yourself or be saved in sin because that's what the great controversy is really all about at its core. Let me remind you of something um, 
I've I've read to you time and time again, but it really bears repeating. This again, The Great Controversy, page 582. She says, From the very beginning of the great controversy in heaven, it has been Satan's purpose to overthrow the law of God. It was to accomplish this that he entered upon his rebellion against the Creator. And though he was cast out of heaven, he has continued the same warfare upon the earth. To deceive men and thus lead them to transgress God's law is the object which he has steadfastly pursued. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. So there's no question about what the battle's all about. Therefore, the, the threefold message that comes out of the mouth of the three unclean spirits has to be about undermining the law of God, plain and simple. And the three angels' messages... What do they do? They have everything to do with upholding and magnifying the law of God. Because they're opposing messages. Well, let's look at the first angel's message. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. The fountains of waters. Right. And so, the first angel's message, yeah, Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. The first angel's message is a call to return to who? The true creator God. And what is the message from the unclean spirits? It's to worship a false God. A false Jesus. In other words, if you're being told that Jesus was different than us, remember Paul said they come preaching a Jesus that we haven't preached, right? So if they're if if you're sitting in a church, you're seeing sitting somewhere, and you're being told that Jesus was different than us, and that he had a human nature that was like, for example, Adam before he fell, therefore he couldn't even be tempted, so as to be he's different than us, you see, you're hearing a message from the unclean spirits. But Jesus is God. You can't tempt God. See? This is what they say. That way, that's Jesus was different. And, and the beast will tell you, well, even Mary was different. Because she couldn't give birth to someone through sin. So, she was immaculated, see? <laughs> she was without sin as well. And what I'm saying is, if you're hearing that kind of a message, you're hearing a message from the unclean spirits. You're hearing about another Jesus, and you're hearing about another gospel, one that saves you in your sins. Not only that, but the first angel's message informs us that the judgment of God has begun. And in that process, there is an investigation of the records of each person's life. And what is it about those records that are looked at that help determine your destiny? Whether or not you've accepted the true Christ and been obedient to what? The law of God. So if you're sitting in a church that says there is no sanctuary in heaven, or only one sanctuary, there was no pattern on earth, 
or that there really is no investigative judgment because, you know, well, we're born sinners and, and can never overcome sin. That all we must do is believe in the name of Jesus. And, and you're sitting there and they say, now's not a time of judgment. judgment. You know, what do you hear today? Don't judge anyone. Right? Don't judge anyone. But we're to celebrate them instead. Well, my friend, you're hearing a message from the three unclean spirits. Revelation 14 and verse 8. <coughs> and there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of fornication. By the way, that wine means false doctrines. But what does this message give? It gives a call that Babylon has fallen. And we're told that we're to come out of her or out of a religion that is confusing the truth by mixing it with an error, right? So if the, the second angel's message is a call to come out of Babylon, then the message of the unclean spirits must be a message to what? Stay in Babylon. To stay in a church that's putting forth any of the Babylonian principles, such as what we've mentioned already. And not only stay in your church that is drunk with the wine of Babylon, those false doctrines like the immortality of the soul, but even a call to return to the mother church by uniting on those points of doctrine that are held in common like Sunday sacredness. I could go on and on and on, but man, I'm running out of time here, friends. <laughs> what about that third angel? Revelation 14, verses 9. And the third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, that would be papal Rome and the false prophet, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture in the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, etc. Get down to verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that do what? They keep the commandments. Why? Because they're following the right Jesus. They have the faith of Jesus. And it's the third angel's message that very clearly, friends, exposes the unclean spirits by saying that God's saints are going to be commandment keepers. They're going to have the faith of Jesus. And any message that deviates from that is a message from the unclean spirits, for the other side will be commandment breakers. I mean, think about it. Since those who keep God's commandments are placed in contrast with those that worship the beast and his image and receive his mark, doesn't it make sense that the keeping of God's law on the one hand and its violation on the other hand will mark the difference between the worshipers of God and the worshipers of the beast? Sure. So if you're hearing messages that Jesus only wants us to love one another, dismissing what the Bible says about obedience to God's commandments, then you're, friends, I'm telling you, you're hearing a message from the unclean spirits. And so the three angels' messages that we just read will be the messages the devil wants to contradict. He wants to counterfeit in order to gain admiration and the worship of those that are living to satisfy the lusts of their fallen flesh. Does that make sense? That's what the devil hopes to accomplish. 
with the threefold message that comes out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. You see, the devil has a unity of sorts. Because his three messages will all lead to the same place. And it's a place that you don't want to go. The three messages that come out of the mouth of those three unclean spirits are all teaching in one way or another that you can make it to heaven even while you're being disobedient to any one of the Ten Commandments, any of the law of God. So when looked at in its entirety, you have two opposing messages. One calls people to receive Jesus and His everlasting gospel, and the other to receive another Jesus and another gospel, and both groups receive a spirit, but they originate from two different sources. Notice this, Acts of the Apostles, page 474. By spiritualism, multitudes are taught to believe that desire is the highest law, that license is liberty, and that man is accountable only to himself. And so the dragon sends his spirit, you see, to deceive, and he uses spiritualism to do this work. The errors of the immortality of the soul will be used to lead all friends, let me tell you now. The Bible declares it. It's going to lead all to Sunday sacredness. And thus people will sympathize with Rome. See? And being led by this Antichrist spirit, people will be enraged with God's true followers because they will be filled with God's Holy Spirit. What's it say in Revelation 12, 17? And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God. And what? They have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And what is it about God's people that enrages them? Not only is it because they keep the commandments, but what else do they have? They have the testimony of Jesus. What is the testimony of Jesus? Revelation 19.10. The angel there telling John not to worship him. He says, I'm of your fellow, fellow brethren. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is what? The spirit of prophecy. You see, friends, God's remnant people will be filled with the spirit of prophecy. And it's that spirit that perfects their character to be like that of Jesus. So you have one spirit, the spirit of Christ, which is based upon obedience to God's law and being ruled by His will. And you have one spirit, the spirit of Antichrist, which is based upon rebellion and be, and be ruled by a despot. <laughs> now as I close up here, Many may be wondering, like me, how do we know of which spirit we are? Is there a, a simple test by which we can know which side of the great controversy we're on? Yeah. Well, there is. It's found in 1 John chapter 3. Begin with verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin 
transgresseth also the law, for sin is what? The transgression of the law. You're a lawbreaker. You've broken God's law. And ye know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin, speaking of Jesus. Whosoever abideth in Him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen Him, neither known Him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as He, Jesus, is righteous. He that committeth sin is of who? The devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. What spirit does that person have? They have the Holy Spirit in their hearts, don't they? In this the children of God are manifest. They're what? They're commandment keepers. They don't sin. That's how they're manifest. And the children of the devil. What? Because they're commandment breakers. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. The threefold message that comes out of the mouth of the three unclean spirits is a message to convince you, friends, that what we just read is not really the way it is. But rather that you can commit sin and still be a child of God. Don't you hear that from the church today? That Jesus was manifest to save us in our sins? Not from our sins. You can't overcome your sins. That you can abide in Christ and still transgress the law? Isn't that what you hear from the church? I want you to keep something in mind. God's love is unconditional, isn't it? The Bible's very plain about it. God's love is unconditional. But salvation is not. God requires obedience to His Ten Commandment law. And if you truly love Jesus, you'll do what He asks. Because you love Him. For He says in John fourteen fifteen, If you love Me, keep My commandments. Or, let me state it plainly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what he's saying. And so our our salvation, friends, it, it depends upon rightly dividing the word of truth. And the truth is, in the end, nearly the whole world will believe the lie that Paul talks about there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've talked about before. I want you to remember what Jesus said in John 8, verses 31 and 32. He said, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It will make you free, you see, from the deadly errors of the three unclean spirits. It will make you free from sin and condemnation. And isn't that what you want? You know, it's available to you when you understand and obey the three angels' messages. That's where the true gospel, the true Jesus, and the true Spirit can be found. And these three messages are the messages that will expose the poisonous errors of those three unclean spirits that are putting forth another gospel, another Jesus, and another Spirit. So friends, I'd like to extend to you the invitation to make a decision to make a commitment to the truth as it's found in God's holy word. To accept the everlasting gospel as given by the first angel's message. To have enough courage and boldness to call people out of the confusion of Babylon, wherever it's found. 
according to the second angel's message. And, and to obey the third angel's message is to keep all ten of God's commandments. To exercise the faith of Jesus. To live by the spirit of prophecy. And if you make this choice today, I'll tell you right up front, the devil's not going to be very happy with you. And he'll try everything in his book of lies to discourage you from keeping this commitment. But friends, I want to give you a little secret here in case you haven't figured it out. God is stronger than the devil. (laughs) Amen? And he's promised to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. But you have to commit. You have to commit everything to him in order to realize that promise. Jesus said if if we're not willing to renounce the world and everything we have for His sake, we couldn't be His disciples. Isn't that what He said? And if we're not His disciples, let me tell you, you can't be saved. You're in a lost condition. So friends, it's time to take a decided stand today. We're living at the very end of time. Let's take a, a decided stand for the three angels' messages which actually we as a generation have been privileged to understand and proclaim. And I hope you'll be among that number and be found victorious with all the saints. And beloved, make your decisions to be on the winning team in this three-on-three contest of the ages. Do you want to be on the winning team? You want the devil to be destroyed and you live with Jesus forever? That's what I want. And I hope you do too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you for prophecy that you've opened it up to your people so that we can see history in advance, that we can be warned of the devil's uh, attacks and his plans so that we can be prepared and prepare others uh, to to see the truth and, and to accept Jesus as the only way to salvation. Lord, I pray for your church and your people. I pray you will strengthen each one to give them each spiritual discernment to see the truth be able to discern the messages from the unclean spirits and to discern the truth that we find in the three angels messages may you give each of us courage to stand and give these messages and a warning to the world the last warning before Jesus returns we want all who can be saved to be saved we thank you so much for the blessings you give to us for this Holy Sabbath day and for sustaining us. We pray that you will continue to lift us up as we proclaim the saving grace, the saving truth of your Holy Word to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.